How much protein should we be consuming for optimal muscle gain, fat loss, and health as we age? That's the topic that we're gonna cover in today's episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. Welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show, where each week you'll hear the real world experiences, life lessons, and guided principles that every highly driven man needs to master, their health, productivity, and relationships by sharing conversations with the world's most successful people in fitness, nutrition, supplementation, and mindset. Meet your host, Benjamin Brown. He is a fitness and nutrition expert, consultant to Fortune 500 companies and world championship sports teams, a husband and father of three, and has been helping men transform their physiques, optimize their energy, and own their fatherly mission since 2005. Thank you for joining us today, and without further ado, let's jump right in. Hey, what's up guys? Welcome to episode number 63 of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show. Today we talk about all things protein with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Dr. Lyon is a fellowship-trained nutrition and cognitive physician who specializes in muscle-centric medicine. She utilizes a truly integrated background to restore and invigorate this organ of longevity. Her deeply personalized approach emphasizes the health of muscle itself. Dr. Lyon's ongoing work is focused on metabolism, muscle, and body composition optimization. As a nationally recognized authority, Dr. Lyon is a regular speaker and sought-after expert and educator, and Dr. Lyon sees patients in New York City. In this episode, we'll cover all things protein, as far as protein intake on muscle health and longevity. We'll discuss the relationship between muscle mass and brain health, blood sugar regulation, as well as the benefit of having relatively large amounts of lean muscle tissue. And lastly, we'll discuss how much protein should be consumed, what sources are best, when to consume those, and which protein supplements you should be aiming for. As I said, this episode is about all things protein that you are not going to want to miss. I hope you guys enjoy. Dr. G, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. It's obviously been a long time uh, in the making. And um, man, I'm just super excited to have you on to talk about protein, to talk about muscle, two of my favorite topics, um, and everything that it entails. So let's just jump in. What got you so fascinated with protein intake with uh, muscle mass? Yeah, that's, um, that's actually interesting. I was, I did my undergraduate in human nutrition, vitamin, mineral metabolism at the University of Illinois. And I was lucky enough to have my professor, I really love to do well, right? So I got straight A's in college. And my professor was Dr. Donald Lehman. And he is one of the world-leading experts in protein metabolism. Actually, Lane Norton and I trained under the same person. So Lane was there as a graduate student when I was completing my undergrad. And his area of research is, again, protein metabolism. And it just became so fascinating to me and the way in which he so eloquently explained everything that it really shifted my focus. And, and so what is it about muscle specifically that, you know, you base your practice around? Why is it so important for those, our listeners to understand the relevance of, of protein intake and muscle in general? Yeah, certainly. From my perspective, I have an interesting path that I took. So I got my degree in human nutrition and vitamin mineral metabolism. And then I went to medical school. While I was in my undergrad, I was a Fitness America and figure competitor. Obviously body composition became really important to me. 
Dr. Leitman was doing some of the first human studies with the zone diet. And what we saw is those individuals that had more muscle tissue did better. They were healthier. Um, they were stronger. Their blood markers were better. Their blood pressure was better. It was just kind of this whole picture of health. <clears throat> then, you know, I've always been really observant. It's all about the external environment in terms of who is around you. And going to medical school, and in medical school, you're exposed to the clinics and the physicians, and a large majority of them were taking the same drugs that they were prescribing to their patients. Mm -hmm. And the defining fact was those that had more muscle, just from a perspective as a young, a motivated medical student, those that had more muscle and those that were physically fit did better. They did better at everything. They were smarter, they were more efficient, they had better moods, all of these things. Um, so that really struck me. And one of the underlying factors is they all trained and they all ate well, mm -hmm. right? And they may not have been eating optimal protein or high protein, but they were all very carb aware. Then yeah. from you know, medical school, you go to residency and the same things holds true for residency. You see the doctors taking the same medications that the patients are taking. So I did two residencies and then I did a fellowship at WashU in obesity medicine. In obesity medicine and geriatrics, which looked at obviously obesity medicine and the effects. And then the geriatric side was longevity, muscle health and brain health. All of that being said, this concept called muscle-centric medicine was born. And it was really that muscle is the largest organ in the body and at the foundation of all health. And that we have these concepts of what it looks like to be over fat, whether it's body fat percentage or BMI, which we know isn't necessarily as accurate, but everyone was focused on excess adiposity. And nobody mm -hmm. was focused on, you know, as a five foot one female who's 120 pounds, what should my muscle tissue be? Yes. Right? Yeah. So there was this huge gap in this way of thinking and just the paradigm of thinking was focused on the problem and never the solution. And essentially muscle-centric medicine uh, was born and the focus of my practice is all about getting this organ of longevity healthy. I love the fact that you talk about muscles and organ, but specifically the fact that you talk about what happens to muscle as an inside out mechanism, as opposed to focusing on the outside in of, of the extraneous factors in our environment and how they affect our health and contribution to disease, but rather saying, if we can affect from an inside out model, if we can affect the muscle positively, then it will actually um, help us abstain or, or, you know, delay any of the, or offset any of the potential outside in factors. And, and one of the things that you said, because I heard you speak, you know, I was at a conference a year ago with you um, when you were speaking at a Charles Poliquin conference, uh, rest in peace. And you said that, um, you said that the wider your waistline, the more damage to your brain. The lower because, your brain volume. Yeah. The wider yeah, the your, your brain volume. Yeah. And I guess, I want to talk about that, but before I want to talk about that, I want to talk about what are we seeing with respect to the conventional uh, American diet and what happens and just, and just lifestyle, what's happening with muscle as we age, what's happening with muscle and intramuscular fat and how is it influencing our health? Well, we're largely domesticated as a population. We are no longer hunters and gatherers. It's just the fact we are not nearly as active as we should be. 
And interestingly enough, the tissue is very pliable and mm -hmm. what we do on a daily basis directly affects its phenotypic expression, how big it gets, how strong it becomes. And what happens is as we age, typically the disease of aging, sarcopenia, which is loss of mus muscular function, muscular strength, and ultimately size, we had originally believed that this was a disease of aging. When I say aging, you're talking 65 years and up, this is no longer the case. We're now seeing changes in the muscle, fat infiltration, you had mentioned intramuscular fat, starting in your 30s because mm -hmm. we are on our phones. I mean, it's crazy. We are all on our iPhones. I, I mean, I'm guilty to it uh, as guilty as the next person. I've set limits, right? So my phone will turn off. Yeah. And we're not moving. We have escalators. We really have become um, incapable of using the tissue that is muscle yes. that we used to. So what happens is, is once you begin, and also our protein intake is declining. There's a big push for vegan and vegetarianism and a lot of talk about sustainability when in fact actually meat consumption has gone down. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the, the end result is we get our, our, the muscle tissue becomes destroyed. And once the muscle tissue becomes destroyed, that trajectory of aging is what you see, small, frail, broken hips. And once an individual becomes hospitalized, it's all downhill from there. And so if we can find ways to optimize our muscle health, our muscle tissue uh, volume, then we can offset a lot of the lifestyle factors Absolutely. that we're, are, we're currently dealing with as a society. Yeah. And it's our metabolic currency. Muscle is metabolic currency. And it's Why? metabolic currency in more than one way. So if you think about it, it's the largest site for glucose disposal, right? So yes. the more muscle you have, the more glucose you're utilizing. It is a, a largest, the largest site for lipid oxidation. When we think about cholesterol, it is responsible largely for our resting metabolic rate. But the a flip side of muscle is that although it's our metabolic currency, it's also our mental currency. Because the only way you get muscle is you have to push through resistance and you have to push mm -hmm. through pain, you have to be disciplined. It's not easy to obtain. Yes. So there's really two parts of muscle-centric medicine and muscle being the, art, the organ of longevity. And Charles was really great about this. You have to earn it. This is a tissue yeah. you earn. And um, we've lost, we've become soft as a society. We've really lost the ability to work hard in ways that are meaningful. Right? We're so busy working, quote, hard at things that are doesn't matter. Being on Instagram isn't working hard. Being distracted during your day and being inefficient, right? right? So uh, when you think about muscle and muscle tissue as we age, there's a mental capacity that goes with having strong tissue. Yeah. And it's a whole lifestyle that comes with, like you said, a whole mental fortitude and lifestyle that comes with what it takes to create the, the muscle mass that we need to live long, healthy lives. Totally. I, yeah, I really like that. Um, that's a great perspective. And, and so with respect to, to brain health, as I mentioned and alluded to earlier, you know, you know what's the relationship between the muscle mass and our brain health? Um, so it's, I love that you asked this. I actually just shot one of the broken brains. This will be my second uh, documentary with them. And 
Alzheimer's cognitive impairment, cognitive impairment in dementia, they believe that it's a multifactorial. So it could be viruses, it could be genetic, it could be all these things. But the number one cause of Alzheimer's disease cognitive impairment is type three diabetes of the brain, right? So it's yeah. metabolic derangement. Yeah. And if you think about muscle, muscle as the metabolic currency, the healthier your muscle tissue, the healthier your brain, because you're not dealing with large levels of glucose and cholesterol, things that would increase your risk for vascular disease. You're maintaining, you know, and also on a high protein diet, you're maintaining glucose homeostasis. You're not getting these rapid, you know, ebbs and flows of blood sugar. So the lower your BMI, the lower your waist, waistline, the higher your brain volume. And that's mm -hmm. inversely. It goes inversely, you know, if the you have a really wide waistline, you have low brain volume. It's just the, the facts. So, so you're suggesting that if we maintain more muscle mass as we age, then we're going to be less likely to deal with associated uh, you know, brain issues yes. like dementia and like Alzheimer's. Yes. If they are metabolic issues, absolutely. Um, you know, that doesn't protect you from viral issues that, that can contribute to sure. Alzheimer's. But if you think about it, the healthier you are, the better. The more metabolically fit you are, the better you're the better off you are. Yeah, because these these diseases are 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 um, clearly correlated to poor blood sugar regulation and, and lifestyle and diet related factors. Absolutely. And it's preventable. And so that's the, the fascinating part is it's, it's all preventable. So what are the ways that you recommend your clients improve their muscle tissue health as they age? So there, there's two main factors to that question. And number one is dietary protein and resistance training. For my patients, I recommend one gram per pound of ideal body weight. And that's for everybody. Of course, mm -hmm. if they're vegan and vegetarian and they're coming to me, then we... Um, we don't go directly to that. I, you know, inch them up. I allow their body to, uh, you know, get adjusted. So typically they're doing one gram per pound of ideal body weight and they're all resistance training. And it of course depends on their training status, but I love my patients to train five days a week. I mean, I have, I reach out to people. I have people program for them appropriately. We know proper programming is key. And then of course, as you age, you have much less flexibility when it comes to nutrition. So you have to have your dietary protein on point, right? As you age, um, typically if they're within their forties and their hormones are declining, I have them, if they're women, go between 30 and even 50 grams of protein and same mm -hmm. with men. So it just depends on body size, 30 to 50 That's, grams. And 30 yeah, is for me. minimum. Um, yeah, per meal. And 30 is just a minimum, even for women. Women should go, you know, I prefer, you know, really between 30 and 50. 40 is um, a safe spot because this is an interesting thing that most people get wrong is the protein is based on blood volume. The need is based on blood volume per meal. So it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're distributing out your protein intake. Ultimately, for muscle protein synthesis and mTOR signaling, it's based on blood volume. With that being right. said, it's based on the amino acid leucine, which I know that you're big into amino acids. And the leucine threshold is the same for men and women. 
So it's just about getting enough leucine to trigger that process and then max out that process. And that's typically between 40 and 50 grams, whether you're male or female. And, and what is that, two and a half, three grams, between two and three grams of, of leucine per? Yeah, about 2.8 plus. So we know that it's 2.5 grams to begin the that mTOR signaling, but really, you know, um, higher would be better. So that's a, you know, for, for people listening, I mean, that's a, that's a good load of protein that I imagine most people that I certainly don't see people get, you know, in the day for 90% of the people that I, I speak with. And I'm sure that's the same for your clients that are coming in. Um, so for, for example, a 250 pound male that ideally would be about 200 pounds, that's 200 grams of protein throughout the day. Right. And that's a pretty good chunk. Um, so what are ways that you recommend that people get that protein in? Some, some tricks. For my busy moms and busy individuals, a protein shake is fine, right? You, yeah. There's ways to do it. I personally don't do that. I love eating food. Um, but if people are in a hurry, then you can either do a vegan protein shake if you don't do whey that has the correct amino acids. I know that you utilize amino acids a lot, so you augment that with amino acids or if they can tolerate whey, then that's fine. Or you then distribute your meals. And if you wanna eat less, then have 50 grams of protein per meal. If you're a 200 pound guy, have four meals at 50 grams. Yeah, yeah, and just distribute it out through day. Now, have you seen an optimal range in terms of how long between each of those feeding opportunities, for lack of a better term? I actually people- really like that question. We don't know the answer to that. So we don't actually know if it's, we know that it takes between four and five hours for the body to reset, but that actually hasn't been studied. I mean, that's what we think happens, but you mm-hmm. know, uh, we don't know for sure. And I think that anyone says that they know for sure, it's not true, but, but the concept, the working model right now is four to five hours yeah. um, between meals. I, I think that makes a lot of sense though, simply from like a leptin management and ghrelin management standpoint and hunger and satiety standpoint and what's realistic for most people, especially if they're going to consume 50 grams of protein, male or female at a meal, you know, you're just not going to be very hungry. Um, right. right. You know, for, you for several hours. Yourself, you know, I think that, I think that I initially in the beginning, you always have to track your numbers and know, mm-hmm. I think that that's a real thing, but I don't think that ignoring your own body cues is ideal you know i used to think and i used to say to my patients don't trust your instinct don't trust your hunger and if it's coming from a a good non-emotional place i think it's possible that that's okay right so if i have a a woman who's 120 pounds and she wants to eat 150 grams of protein that might be hard for her and that that's fine right like i'm okay with that maybe she should scale it back you know that's totally fine yeah now how important are the bcas one around our workout window and then how would you supplement them if at all uh ancillary to that to the workout window i think that if you're eating enough protein you don't necessarily have to augment branch chain amino acids but what i will say is from experience in dealing with a lot of military people and athletes that um, intra-workout is fine, and we also know that for every hour of high-intensity exercise, whether it's lifting or just output of strenuous exercise, you need about 10 grams extra. 
your body yeah. goes through about 10 grams of protein. So utilizing it, let's say if you're doing a marathon or doing some kind of extensive lifting, there's, um, you know, having branch chains around that time for use by the mm -hmm. muscle is good. But again, branch chains alone won't allow for muscle repair or building. Right. You need the whole and, span of amino acids. Yeah, absolutely. Hence, hence the real food. Now, what's your opinion of all the essential amino acids versus just the BCAs, utilizing them in and around workouts or as an adjunct to protein um, to help hit protein goals? I think that if an individual's source of protein is low or they don't have access, so let's say they have a three ounces of a, a lower quality protein like fish. So three ounces times five, that's 15 grams of protein. So a right. fish meal with 15 grams of protein, then a way to augment that would be utilizing a branch chain amino acids, a two to one to one ratio, bringing up that leucine level to 2.5 plus the mm -hmm. fit is a great way to do it. Intra-workout, I mean, branch chains, I get a lot of good feedback. Individuals like it intra-workout. Um, and then post-workout, if you want to utilize it, but again, you should be using something that has the full spectrum of amino acids. Okay. And, and so what are you seeing? Is there any research or what are you seeing in the research with respect to the role of uh, utilizing all of the essential amino acids versus just the BCAs? Is there anything out there? Well, in terms of, in terms of what question, there's a lot of good sure. information out there for utilizing branched chain amino acids for things beyond just muscle mass, right? So it's good for immune cells. Um, leucine and the branch chains do a lot of things. They help with arginine production, which with, then helps with NO2 production. There's all kinds of things. Helps with fatty acid oxidation. Um, so that is something that it can be beneficial for, but yeah. it's not, so if your diet is lower in protein, but it's not necessary. Yeah, sure. And, and then I guess I'll, I'll follow that up by asking, and this is just an aside, this is just something I've been really curious about that seems to be sort of this gap in, um, in the literature per se, as far as how would we classify uh, the essential amino acids, so supplemental essential amino acids or BCA as it contributes to our total protein intake. For example, if I'm yeah. consuming 20 grams of the essential amino acids, is that 20 grams of protein or because it's digested more effectively? Is that 40 grams of protein? No, you know, no. What, what I, think that I, I think overcomplicating it for people would be more of a detriment. What I think the focus is, is on high quality proteins rather sure. than, because if someone looks at a plant-based protein, it has a, a lot of the essential amino acids, but in levels like the branch chains are notoriously low. Sometimes sure. the plants might be low in methionine or lysine. So it becomes confusing for people. What I think is a really good way to do it is when you're going to eat something, identify is this a high quality protein from an animal source or is this a low quality protein from a plant source? If it's yes. a low quality protein from a plant source, then immediately you're going to think if optimizing body composition and optimizing wellness is my goal, I'm going to add in a branch chain amino acid. If yeah. you have a high quality protein like eggs or whey or beef or turkey, then utilizing a branch chain at that time is unnecessary unless the quantity is too low. 
so when you look about what I think you were talking about is the protein digestibility score. Um, But I think the better way, um, an easier way to look at it would be determine if it's high quality or low quality and then quantity. Yeah, I guess, I guess, I I mean, I may just be spinning circles, but I guess what I'm really asking is, is it a way to um, essentially hit, let's say we try and hit that 200 gram protein goal. Is it acceptable to, to hit 20 grams of essential amino acids. Totally. Um, yeah, it's just an easy way for yeah. people to do that. And I imagine that you have, that you recommend most plant-based eaters supplement with the branch chain amino acids simply because the leucine levels are up, are typically low in, in plant-based proteins. And all of them. There's also, you know, actually I, I like to represent, I like to recommend a full amino acid. So there's, you know, yeah, a branch chain is definitely necessary. I would say yes. I typically recommend a branch chain amino acid. But the ideal, in an ideal world, is they would get everything. Mm-hmm. But again, the, the plant-based proteins are much lower in branch chain amino acids. Hey, brother. Are you struggling to find the energy to function at your best as a businessman, father, and husband? I want you to know you're not alone. And sadly, the conventional wisdom these days around healthy eating and exercise that has saturated the mainstream is flat out wrong. If you want to find the solution to optimizing your energy and body composition without restrictive dieting, soul-crushing workouts, or adding more to your already stressful and overflowing schedule so that you can finally function like the man you know you can be, then we need to chat. Are you ready to move from exhausted to energized? by working smarter, not harder, go ahead and schedule your free strategy call at www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up. I'm looking forward to our conversation and enjoy the rest of the show. Uh, In your lecture last year, one of the things you talked about was time-restricted feeding and different fasting techniques that you utilize in your practice. And I've recently become become a lot more fascinated with different types of fasting. I just um, implemented my own uh, Prolon-esque five-day fast mimicking diet uh, without the foods, but just did it on my own um, with some medical food powders and what have you. And, and how I did think you do that it? there's... You, how did um, I do it? Did you do methionine restriction? Um, I used, uh, yeah, I used rice pea protein powder. Right and just some greens and then uh, up the fats a little bit um, with some nuts and seeds or some MCT oil. Otherwise kept the calories about 800 to a thousand per day and, and just, and then utilize the time restricted feeding just in terms of, um, you know, didn't eat until from like five or 6 PM until noon or one or two, depending, and then squeezed in a couple shakes in between. Um, which was phenomenal. I mean, that was the second time I've, I've implemented it and felt, felt really, really good uh, in terms of definitely brain function. Energy was low, but that's kind of to be expected for a 210-pound guy to do 1,000 calories. Yeah, wow. Um, so, but, so what are the ones that – how are you utilizing the intermittent fasting in your practice? What's the value that you're seeing? I do, it, I do it two ways. Um, for individuals that are leptin resistant, which means obviously they typically, from a clinical perspective, what I see have tried everything to lose weight and they can't, even though they're on an 800 calorie diet. Those that are leptin resistant, I find that 
putting them on a restricted window is ideal or men that have really kind of that last stubborn body fat um, and I put them I have them eat in an eight hour window so they'll eat from 10 to 6 or 11 to 7 or 12 to 8 and ideally they do it every day of course it depends on their hormone status but and if their hormone status is not ideal for example, if they're having issues with their thyroid or the men are having issues with testosterone, I just do it three days a week. And I monitor them for one month. So I'll give it to them for a month. Because what I found, the negative aspects that I found is those men that do a lot of fasting, their testosterone is much lower than a guy that is eating protein during the day and training. Again, this is, I don't have data for this. I can just tell you from seeing hundreds and hundreds of patients that the men that are doing the time-restricted feeding for an extended period of time, their hormone status is not good. Mm -hmm. um, but then there is Prolon, which I actually really, really like. And what that is, is that's that five-day fasting mimicking diet. And that is done, and I do that for myself, every three months. And that is an extremely low vegan diet, and it's five days. And there is some interesting data. It's published in Cell that it improves stem cell production, that it improves inflammatory markers, CRP, and um, uh, SED rate, those kinds of things. And that's a five-day, not, not for the faint of heart. No, definitely not, but I found it gets a lot easier. It does. Uh, the more you do it, the more you, and I'm sure anyone who does any aspect of intermittent fasting would say it's, it's definitely a learned response, just getting in touch with your hunger and satiety cues and, and learning to just get comfortable with that stuff. So I think it's a really, really valuable tool for people to implement if someone, if, if you feel like someone's ready for yeah. a, a relatively aggressive approach and is, you know, needs an aggressive approach. So definitely, you know, I'm sure you, as you would probably agree, someone who's more metabolically deranged. Um, and, and what's the influence um, of the low methionine? Why is that so important? Um, they believe that that's how, what they actually, and I don't know all the details of it, but that's what's believed to make vegans and prolon so successful, is they essentially restrict methionine and it creates kind of a catabolic frenzy in the body because the body should have all the essential amino acids. Mm -hmm. And when you restrict methionine, they believe that you upregulate this autophagy and it's almost as if it, it shocks the system. I wish I could give you a more scientific answer. So Tracy Anthony, she's done a lot of that. I think she's in, I think she's at Purdue, but anyway, she has done a lot of work on that. Um, and so, yeah, so that's why it's believed to exist because the body is not really designed to be on a methionine restriction. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this whole approach and the many different ways that you can utilize it. Let me ask, do you utilize any aspect of ketogenic uh, dieting or, you know? I don't, but I am certainly open to it. I mean, obviously it works well for a lot of people because it wouldn't be nearly as popular if it, if it didn't. I just sure. haven't seen it work so well for the women in my clinic. Okay. Um, they go through kind of a four-week honeymoon phase, and then they all go back to gaining weight. 
And I also right. find that it's not sustainable for them. Yeah, that's definitely one of the issues that I see is, I mean, especially when we talk about people who are living busy lifestyles, which is everyone that I know, especially people with kids and they want to, you know, vacation and they want to, you know, they have to make food for their kids. It's just not super realistic. Not that it doesn't work, obviously. And I think it's just, again, could be one of those tools where you implement for three weeks or a month to kickstart things or, you know, maybe contribute to more metabolic flexibility is by, yeah. by going through these various nutritional strategies, ketogenic, intermittent fasting, you know, five-day fast mimicking. I, I feel like it's a great way to keep you more metabolically flexible and utilizing fats effectively and carbohydrates effectively and, and what have you. With that said, do you generally recommend that your clients keep their carbohydrates relatively low? Very low. Very, very low. What's that? So for me personally, I'm probably at 30 grams of carbs a day um, because protein generates enough carbohydrates. You can get all the carbohydrates you need from protein. 60% of protein um, gets converted to carbohydrate. My patients initially, I will start them at 90 and that is very generous. And so when you say protein is, is converted to carbohydrate, are you referring through gluconeogenesis? Um, no, the carbon backbone. It's just actually... Okay. Um, in the metabolic process of breaking it down. And I was okay. talking to Donald Lehman about this, and I said, Don, you know, where's the data on this? He says, just if you look in the biochemistry books, this is, this is what happens. And the body will, when it comes to gluconeogenesis, it absolutely happens through protein, you know, through protein metabolism. Yes, absolutely. And so essentially, I mean, 90 grams, now, if, you don't if need someone that. can... So for me, I eat two pounds of protein a day. A girl after Charles's heart. Right. Know? I mean, I eat my meat. And, right. But so if you're consuming a ton of veggies, though, that in and of itself could be. I don't need any, but I eat very little veggies. Okay. I, I use a green powder. I don't eat a ton of veggies and it's sustainable for me. And, and so your rationale is to minimize the, car the carbohydrates or you feel like you don't need them or? I don't feel good on it. I think that there has okay. to be a component of, you know, for me, I it became pretty easy to keep my body fat percent between 12 and, you know, max 14, that would be on the high end. And when I was higher protein, uh, I found that I didn't struggle as much. So when I shift my patients over to a higher protein diet, I find that they don't struggle as much. Obviously, so you eliminate the grains because that's obviously going to be way too much of a carbohydrate bonus. I mean, you can have a little bit of fruit maybe once in a while, but really just veggies if you need it. If you feel okay. good other people don't, you know, um, I think that there's something to be said for the carnivore diet. It's interesting. What I really think is I really think that every individual is biochemically different and that you, that calories absolutely matter. And then you'll find that eating strategy that works well for any individual, you know, for my fiance, who's a Navy SEAL guys eating granola and still has, I don't know, eight pack, right? Um, and that works well for him. He can eat a higher carbohydrate diet and it doesn't bother him. For someone like me, I need to eat, you know, more of a carnivore style diet, very high protein, very low carb. And um, I think that once you find, and then I have a great friend, she's a vegan orthopedic surgeon. She <laughs> looks amazing and, and that works for her. So I think, you know, once you identify what you do well with, you will know, you'll know. If you don't feel great and you're not lean, it's not right. Yeah. And, and ditch the, any of the dogma associated with the diet and, and uh, listen to your body and, and start to experiment with things. I think but I think you have to work under the confines of certain principles like calories matter, 
quality of food matters. Once you determine kind of what style you are, whether you're ketogenic, whether you're carnivore, whether you're high carb paleo, whatever it is, um, you know, it's really, I think number one is determining your macronutrient balance is the first in, in the first step in anything. Mm -hmm. And would you typically recommend that people log their foods if they're maybe don't have a very good idea of how many calories they take in on a daily basis or you don't know what you, um, if you don't track it, you don't know it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, okay. I've heard you talk about the benefits of vitamin C. Um, I want to, I want to quickly touch on vitamin C and then I'll, I'll wrap it up, but could you talk about why you're such a fan of utilizing vitamin C? I've just seen it work really well. And as humans, we don't make it. We're one of the only mammals that don't make vitamin C. I, um, there's data to suggest that it is anti-cancerous. It is a free radical um, scavenger. It's an antioxidant. We live in a very toxic environment in which individuals are exposed to smoke. Vitamin C helps with collagen synthesis. We all want to be looking good and our super vein. We all want our hair and our nails and our tendons to be strong. Most people don't understand that that also requires vitamin C. And as you're burning through it, you know, it's not like glutathione. It's not recycled. Mm -hmm. um, glutathione is also another master antioxidant. But vitamin C, again, we don't have the capacity. It's not like vitamin D. We have no capacity to make it. I think guinea pigs are the only animals. Guinea pigs might make vitamin C, but we don't. And so what, what form would, do you recommend people utilize vitamin C? I love vitamin C in a liposomal form. Uh, okay. the company first form and I'll put a link to it if this comes out in February um, first right. form is coming out with a liposomal vitamin C and uh, a liposomal form which means that it is has uh, more superior bioavailability has a phospholipid membrane in which it can get through um, stomach digestion acid doesn't cause as much GI issues right and a buffer mm -hmm. C is also really really great and um, it's essential for, you know, you feel less inflamed. There is this anti-inflammatory effect that helps. It's really important for gum disease, periodontal disease, bleeding gums, that kind of stuff. Fascinating. Um, yeah, vasculature. You, and this happens to a lot of women. You see that they kind of get petechiae on their skin or easily yeah. bruising that's, or nosebleeds. That's all vascular frailty. Would you say that every single client that comes into your clinic, do you invariably up their protein intake? Yes. That's something that's across the board. Yes. Generally, you would say people just do not consume enough protein. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yes. I mean, absolutely. And obviously people are getting great results because of, uh, because of that in concert with, I'm assuming the other lifestyle recommendations like adding in strength training. Uh, yes. hundred percent. None of my patients leave without being referred to or having a strength coach and having more protein. And there's really no argument. If they're, you know, I'm hard to get into, I have a long waiting list. And if people are coming to me for help, they have to be ready to utilize both physical and mental capacities. Otherwise, it's yeah. not a good fit. You know, you yeah. come to me, just like with Charles, you come to me because you're ready to work. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, so the one thing uh, that you've mentioned and that I've certainly observed is as we get older, you've mentioned that protein intake potentially needs to be higher than yes. when you're younger. Why is that? 
because you get something called anabolic resistance in the muscle. And what that means is that, so there's a few things that happen. You have a decrease in splanchnic extraction from the system. So um, the body just becomes in, uh, less efficient at utilizing amino acids. And the tissue becomes older and more resistant to that mTOR signaling. So as you age, you tend to need more protein and more protein at once. So for my older patients, the goal is 50 grams per meal. Yeah. And that's high for people. That's super high, especially because older people generally don't want to eat as much protein. There's potentially more digestive issues, um, all of those types of things. And, and uh, so I think that's a huge clinical pearl right there is getting people, especially as they're older, one strength training, but two, definitely consuming enough protein. Um, for muscle protein synthesis. So that, that's super valuable. Thank you. Um, okay, Dr. G, I'm going to wrap it up here. But okay. uh, one question I like to ask all of my guests is, uh, and I think you already covered it, but if there was only one meal that you could eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the rest of your life, what would that one meal be? I bet you could guess. Well, I'm going to say a big uh, a big piece of meat. Yeah, I would say ground beef. pounds of meat at yeah. a time. It would be ground beef, maybe put in some jalapenos, some peppers, some cilantro, and um, call it a day. Maybe throw Easy. a hard-boiled egg on there. That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to ask you one more question um, because I had the pleasure of listening to you speak uh, at a Charles Poliquin seminar. And so I'd love to hear from you. What are a couple clinical pearls that you learned from Charles himself uh, that you'd be willing to share with our listeners? Yes. One of the things, so I don't know if your listeners know, but I spoke to Charles. We were, we probably were in some kind of contact every day, if not every other day. And um, he was a mentor. He's a friend. I was the first female doctor he endorsed. Mm -hmm. And one of that, one of the reasons was when we spoke, I said, Charles, you know, how are you getting all this information? And he spends about, I mean, it was like 30 hours a week reading. It was something crazy. So one of the big takeaways with Charles is to always read, to, to actually set aside time daily to read data. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was huge. Yeah, he had a remarkable ability to recall information. I don't know. I think he told me once that he had a photographic memory. But, I mean, he could tell you where he learned pieces of information, whether it was from a resource or from a study or from, you know, a person themselves. And, and so that's, yeah, that's a huge one. Um, awesome. Well, Dr. G, thank you very much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And certainly so do our listeners. And um, I guess where can people find out more about you? I'm very active on Instagram and the handle there is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and my Facebook, not as active, but that's, uh, the handle is the same, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. And then Twitter again with that same, um, name, I will be updating my protein protocol and I will be launching a 28 day challenge that will run every month. Awesome. All right, guys, check out the show notes for more information uh, to connect with Dr. G and check out our 28-day challenge. And uh, Doc, thanks so much. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you take care and keep up the great work. You're doing an awesome job. I really appreciate you and everything that you're doing. And uh, we'll chat soon. I appreciate the support. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. 
Did you love this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show? Then head on over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a positive rating and review. And more importantly, share this with other men that you know are dedicated to leveling up in every area of their life by learning how to live healthier, more energetic, and productive lives so that they can optimize their health for their family and future. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more about how you can work directly with Ben, then just head on over to www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up.